All right, so, uh, so last week we looked at the issue of, uh, of resistance and uh, considered uh, past couple of times we've been in the Maccabees, we looked at uh, the resistance of Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus and company against the, uh, against the Greeks, and we saw that it seems broadly to have been approved in the, in the prophecy, uh, especially of Daniel 11, uh, that, this was, that this was a good and acceptable thing, and we talked about uh, ways in which that may or may not uh, apply to us. And so today, and I'm not sure, not sure how things will go, we might, uh, might be able to cover what's on the outline or we might, might need to push some of this back till, till later on. But I wanted to look at uh, the, the abomination of, of desolation as was prophesied and then uh, actually fulfilled uh, during, uh, during the times of the Maccabees and uh, then the, the cleansing of the temple that was, that was prophesied and fulfilled and then look at uh, some of sort of how this... Uh, how this theme kind of carries over into uh, into New Testament times uh, and how we see this this kind of cyclical pattern of things kind of popping up again and again, the abomination of desolation, Antiochus being a type of the Antichrist, and so on. So uh, so first, let's, let's take a look at uh, the prophesied abomination of desolation, Daniel uh, chapter 8. And Daniel 8 doesn't actually use the words, the abomination of desolation, but it is prophesying uh, this... Uh, this pagan sacrifice that uh, that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, set up, and so this is Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter eight, verses nine through fourteen. Uh, Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then if you, uh, if you flip on down uh, later on in the chapter, uh, Daniel 8, verses 23 through 25, you see, uh, you see the, uh, the explanation that was given uh, to Daniel in this. In the latter period of their rule, when transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men, and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And uh, so we have the prophecy there of, uh, of the abomination of desolation, even though it doesn't use those precise words. It's talking about uh, that incident, and then we uh, we see it with the, with the phrase, the abomination of desolation, Daniel eleven thirty one and 32. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And... Uh, and so, so we have the, the prophecies there before us, and then we find uh, the fulfillment of them in the Maccabean context, uh, 1 Maccabees 1, uh, 2 Maccabees chapter 6. So I've given you the, the text of 1 Maccabees 1, uh, 54 through 59, there in, uh, uh, there in the handout, and so we'll, we'll read that uh, from 1 Maccabees 1, its account of, uh, of the, the abomination of desolation, the setting up of this, uh, this sacrifice there in the temple. Now, on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege. In other words, the abomination of desolation. I believe the, uh, the Greek is, is the same as the, uh, as the Septuagint phrase and the phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law that they found were torn to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by the decree of the king. 
They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. And uh, I'll just read from the text of 2 Maccabees chapter 6, uh, which kind of gives us a parallel account of, uh, of this sacrifice and the, uh, the suppression of true religion in uh, Judea. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their fathers and cease to live by the laws of God and also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and call it the temple of Olympian Zeus and to call the one in Gerizim. So Gerizim would be the the temple that the Samaritans had built. Um, And so they were transforming that temple as well uh, to call the one in Gerizim the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers as did the people who dwelt in that place. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws No one could either keep the Sabbath or observe the feasts of his fathers or so much as confess to being a Jew. And so, uh, and so this is this is what was what was going on, and uh, we see the the Maccabean accounts of it, First and Second Maccabees. Uh, Josephus also speaks of it in uh, in his Antiquities of the Jews. This is this comes from Book Twelve, uh, Chapter Five, and he he says this. Now it came to pass. After two years, in the 145th year, on the 12th, I'm sorry, on the 25th day of the month, which is called Kislev, and by the Macedonians at Pelas in the 153rd Olympiad, that the king came up to Jerusalem and pretending peace, he got possession of the city by treachery, at which time he spared not so much as those that admitted him into it on account of the riches that lay in the temple. But led by his covetous inclination, for he saw there was in it a great deal of gold and many ornaments that had been dedicated to it of very great value. And in order to plunder its wealth, he ventured to break the league that he had made. So he left the temple bare and took away the golden candlesticks and the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the altar of burnt offering and did not abstain from even the veils, which were made of fine linen and scarlet. He also emptied it of its secret treasures and left nothing at all remaining. And by this means, he cast the Jews into great lamentation. He forbade them to offer those daily sacrifices, which they had used to offer to God according to the law. And when he had pillaged the whole city, some of the inhabitants he slew and some he carried captive together with their wives and children, so that the multitude of those captives that were taken alive amounted to about 10,000. He also burnt down the finest buildings, and when he had overthrown the city walls, he built a citadel in the lower part of the city, for the place was high and overlooked the temple. On which account he forfeited it with high walls and towers and put into it a garrison of Macedonians. However, in that citadel dwelt the impious and wicked part of the Jewish multitude, from whom it proved that the citizens suffered many and sore calamities. And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he slew swine upon it, and so offered a sacrifice, neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid to their own God, and to adore those whom he took to be God's and made them build up temples and raise idol altars in every city and village and to offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that would be found to have transgressed his injunction. He also appointed overseers who should compel them to do what he commanded. And indeed, many Jews there were who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of fear of penalty that was denounced. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, but did pay greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to the disobedient, on account of which they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments, for they were whipped with rods and their bodies were torn to pieces and were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. 
They also strangled those those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon the crosses. And if there were any sacred book or law found, it was destroyed, and those with whom they were found miserably perished also. And so this is... uh, this is the dire straits that were, that were prophesied uh, by Daniel as he prophesied this, this, uh, this small horn growing up and becoming mighty, flinging truth to the ground, and, and so on. And so this, this was the situation uh, under which the, the Maccabees revolted and eventually recaptured the temple and cleansed it. And so we find the, the cleansing of the temple prophesied in, in Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, and in verse 26. And so... Uh, let's take a look there at the, uh, the prophecy of the, of the cleansing, and uh, then we'll see as to how it, how it played out in the, in the Maccabean period. So this is Daniel 8, 13, and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? In other words, how long, how long will this, this vision of the, the regular sacrifice being put to an end, how long will this apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And then uh, if you look on down to, uh, to verse 26... Uh, we see there the explanation uh, that the angel gives to Daniel. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And um, just, as a, just as kind of an exegetical note here on, on Daniel 8, the question has been asked, what do we, what do we make of these 2,300 evenings and mornings. There are, uh, there are multiple views out there, and so one perspective would be uh, to take the, the 2,300 evenings and mornings as 2,300 days. 2,300 evenings, 2,300 mornings. And if you do the math, 2,300 days would turn out to be uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of six years and four months. And such a time period as that would, uh, would uh, cover, uh, depending on how you want to when, when you want to have the start and end times, it could cover uh, from uh, basically the period when Antiochus began oppressing the Jews up until the temple was cleansed, or it could cover the time from when the actual abomination of desolation took place up until, uh, up until they, uh, they killed Nicanor, who was, uh, who was one of the uh, one of the, the Greek generals, and so they, they ended up killing Nicanor sometime after the temple was cleansed. And so, um, and so if if the twenty three hundred days are are twenty three hundred evenings and mornings are are taken as twenty three hundred days, twenty three hundred evenings, twenty three hundred mornings, then uh, then you've got this this period of six years and some change, uh, which depending on how you want to where you want to start and end can cover some of that. Uh, that period there. Another way of taking this would be to take the 2300 as being the sum total of evenings plus mornings. So that'd be 1150 days total. And, uh, and so this view would be tied into the fact that the, the sacrifice was to be offered both in the morning and in the evening. And so if, there's, if this is talking about 2300 sacrifices, then Two a day, that would total up to be 1,150 days, and that would be a period of about three years and two months. And that would be close to, but not exactly, the, the period during which the, uh, the temple was under the control of the, uh, of the pagans. And so it was about uh, three years exactly from December 167 B.C. to December 164 B.C. Uh, that, uh, that the Greeks were... Uh, in charge of, of the temple. And so uh, Dale Ralph Davis, commentator that I particularly enjoy in the Old Testament, he, he uh, was comparing the, the two views this way. He said, read Andrei Steinman, and he'll convince you of the 1150 view. Read Stephen Miller, and he'll convince you of the 2300 view. If I were held at gunpoint and told to make a decision, I would opt for the 2300 position. But it's difficult, even with a gun. In any case, 
2300 figure tells us that this is a rather long period, yet the fact that it is calculated in days means that it is definitely a limited one. And so, um, so Dale Ralph Davis understands the, the difficulty of, of choosing between the two, but I think um, some, some helpful thoughts there, recognizing that it's, it's a limited period, right? This is, this is going to be intense, but it's not going to go on forever. There is an end in sight. And that end comes with the cleansing of the temple. And so we find that uh, there in 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 4. And so I've given you the text there in the, in the handout, 1 Maccabees 4, uh, 36 to 59. Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket or as on one of the mountains. They saw also the chambers of the priests in ruins. Then they tore their clothes and mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down to the ground. And when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering, which had been profaned, and they thought it best to tear it down so that it would not be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. Then they took unhewn stones, as the law directs, and built a new altar like the former one. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand, and these gave light in the temple. They placed the bread on the table and hung up the curtains. Thus they finished all the work they had undertaken. Early in the morning, on the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month of Kislev, in the 148th year, that is 164 B.C., they rose and offered sacrifice, as the law directs, on the new altar of burnt offering that had been built. At the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, three years earlier, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. And all the people fell on their faces and worshipped and blessed heaven who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and joyfully offered burnt offerings. They offered a sacrifice of well-being and thanksgiving offering. They decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields. They restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and fitted them with doors. There was a very great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly determined that every year, at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Kislev. And uh, that, of course, is, uh, is what we know as uh, the Jewish uh, celebration of Hanukkah, uh, referred to as, uh, as the Feast of Dedication. And uh, thus we find even Jesus uh, keeping the Feast of Dedication. John 10, 22, uh, Jesus had uh, been there in Jerusalem, and John explicitly mentions uh, that it was the Feast of Dedication. And so um, the... Uh, the first and second Maccabees don't uh, don't mention what is what kind of became part of later Jewish tradition uh, in regard to the the oil of the lamps, and so the the tradition was that uh, that they uh, only had maybe enough oil for for one day, and they lit the lamps, and the lamps burned for for all eight days. Now the old uh, the old accounts don't uh, don't mention that, but that uh, later uh, became part of Jewish tradition. Uh, so whether or not that actually happened, I'll refrain from, from commenting on, but, uh, but nevertheless, that's, uh, that's the historical basis for, uh, for the Feast of Dedication, for Hanukkah, and in it we see uh, the prophecies of Daniel fulfilled. And so that's, that's kind of the, the history. Now, 
we're going to try to spend the, the rest of our time kind of digging into the theological significance of this. But before we, before we get there, any questions, though, on kind of the, the prophecies in Daniel, the fulfillment in the, in the Maccabean context? Anything before we, before we get to kind of the theological significance and then, uh, and then kind of some of the future implications for us? Becca? No. I th- I think so. I I know there's lunar versus. Mm, that is that is a good question, and I've I've looked at some some stuff in that regard. It's it's, it's been a long time ago, but I don't I don't know exactly. So that's a, that's a great question, but I think it does turn out to make the years I want to say shorter. Um, and so, but as to the precise number, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, I don't think it would. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question because, because, because I, I guess it would be three shorter years, right, from twenty fifth of Kislev to twenty fifth of Kislev three three years later, and so that's yeah, it's a good good question, and I don't I don't have the I don't have the precise answer for that. Um, Mark, yeah. Is is it three sixty? Okay, yeah, that, that I yeah, that sounds as good as anything I can think of. So yeah, yeah, thank you. And then Nick, do you have a hand up? Uh, Just gonna say that. Okay, so we got got two votes for three sixty. So I'm I'm inclined to think that's that's probably probably pretty good. Jamie, do you have anything? Yeah, I, I thought it was three sixty two. All right, that's that's great. We got three. I think I think that's a that's a good good question, and so I would draw I would draw the parallel to uh, Christmas, Good Good Friday, Easter. I think, um, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I know in the I know in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't I don't know if I don't know if 1689 London Baptist cites the same text, but but in in Westminster it uh, explicitly refers to Esther when. It uh, is open to the church establishing fast days, like for 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 a church to to call its people to to fast. It cites the text of Esther and says, "This this is okay." Um, and so and so I would I would kind of expand that and say that you know and like so so in uh, in years in years past, long long time ago, we had a we had a church member who was who was very ill and we. As a church, had a had a day where we asked people if they were able to to fast, and you know we didn't we didn't require that of them, but uh, but we had a kind of a church fast day, if you if you will, and um, and I would I would expand that to the to the issue of a, of a quote unquote feast day or a holiday as well that that um, you know we don't want to uh, bind anyone's conscience, and so you know if. If you don't want to have Christmas dinner with your family and and read Luke chapter two before you open Christmas presents, that's that's okay. You know you don't you don't you don't have to do that. But um, but I think I think it can be can be helpful and useful to to commemorate uh, things within within the cycle of a year that that God has has done for for His people. And I think I think you raise a good point there that that the same type of thing happens in Esther. But Esther is a canonical book. But even in Esther, there's no clear clear command from God that they were to set up the feast of Purim. So. Ruby? Yeah. Yeah, there would have been both religious and national um, connotations uh, to it, and um, and you you raise a good point that I, I wanted to wanted to mention but forgot. And if you look back to the uh, the handout, the let me see what verse it is there from the the reading of Second Maccabees four. Um, this is verse 
verse 46, uh, it talks about what they were going to do with the, the altar that they tore down. They stored the stones in a convenient place on the Temple Hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. And I think this is, is kind, of, kind of important um, in regard to, to, to for us to understand, and even I think this is a reflection of Israel's self-understanding at the time. They, they seem to understand that we don't, we don't have the prophetic voice right now functioning among us. They, uh, they seem to recognize, I think, that, uh, that with, the, with the passing of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the, the prophetic voice had, had, been, uh, had been shut off. And so you have, um, you know, sometimes we talk about the, the 400 years of silence between, between Malachi and, and the coming of Christ, or I would say between Malachi and, say, the coming of John the Baptist. And and I think I think that's I think that's right, and I think you see a reflection of that here here in the in the uh, the text of First Maccabees, where where they're kind of like, uh, well, this this is what seems to be the right thing to do. We don't quite know what to do with these stones. They they were holy, they were defiled. We'll just make a pile, and maybe a prophet will tell us what to do with them sometime. And uh, and so I think I think that kind of kind of gives us a a sense for the their own self understanding and how they were functioning um, without. Uh, without a prophetic voice at the time, but any any other questions before we before we try to jump into the uh, the theological significance? Good good questions all around. All right, so um, so for one, I think um, uh, one one point of significance is um, that that the gates of hell will not ultimately prevail against the people of God. Certainly Jesus gives that promise to his church in Matthew 16. And I think uh, we could say likewise uh, for, uh, for, the old, for the Old Testament period as well. That, uh, you know, even if you think back to Elijah, when Elijah was thinking, I'm, I'm the only one left, the Lord said there's, there's still 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee uh, to Baal. And I think, uh, you know, Esther was mentioned, and I think Esther is another case in point where, uh, where you have God working supernaturally to, uh, to preserve his people and, uh, and not allowing his, his people and the true religion to be wiped out from the face of the earth. And I think we see that, uh, that showing up again here, uh, here in, the, uh, in the book of, of Maccabees, that uh, ultimately, the, the gates of hell is not going to prevail against against God's people. God will sustain His church. Doesn't mean uh, that things will always go well for for all believers. Sometimes we suffer persecution, and get killed, and die, and suffer torture, and so on. Uh, we'll have to trust God should that come upon us. But uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think Christ's promise applies not only to the future, but we see it reflected here in in the past as well. Um, Jamie, is your hand about to go up or? Just, just thinking. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The use of force and resistance. Yeah, my, my. If after kind of, kind of working through things and thinking through things, my, uh, my basic position came down to, um, the distinction between, uh, private persecution versus public persecution. In other words. Just some random individual persecuting believers versus state-sanctioned persecution, and on the other hand, private resistance versus public resistance. So, in other words, some some government kind of taking up taking up arms, taking up responsibility for its people, and saying you're not doing that to to our people. Versus, um, on the other hand, uh, just a, a private Christian saying, "Oh yeah, you're not coming in here." And there's there's the the and run a county police force, and and uh, somebody just says, "Yeah, yeah, it ain't happening here." Um, and so, my basic conclusion, kind of drawing those drawing those those things, that in cases of of private persecution, then private resistance is fine. If you know some uh, somebody just randomly comes in here trying to harm us, we won't know first of all whether they're trying to harm us just because they want to harm people, or whether they're coming here because they want to harm us for our beliefs. We, we won't know that. I'm not going to ask, right? And, uh, so, if, and so in, in cases of, of private persecution, I think private resistance is fine. In cases of public resistance, I'm, I'm sorry, in cases of public persecution, state-sanctioned persecution, I think 
at that point, I think, I think you need some kind of government. If, so, so, for instance, God forbid the federal government should ever decide to persecute believers. At that point, I hope the state of Maryland, Anne Arundel County, whatever, will, will raise some kind, of a, some kind of force to say it's not happening here. Um, but, but I think that in cases of state-sanctioned uh, persecution, then we as, as believers have to, have to trust the Lord and... and move forward the best we can. So that was that's my kind of tentative conclusion. I'm open to I'm open to further dialogue about that, but that was that was kind of kind of where I came down um, at the end. So anything else before we get to before we get to the second part of the the theological significance. Um, the second second point and this will uh, this will this will go on for for longer than our than our first one is uh, it's been said, and I don't know, I don't know who said it, but that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. In other words, there are there are things that uh, that that come back in history, and like, wait a minute, we've seen this before, and I think this is especially true in in this situation here, and I say so for uh, for multiple reasons. One has to do with this phrase, uh, the abomination of desolation. And it, it shows up three times in the book of Daniel. Now, the, the wording is not always the same. And as, as we saw, Daniel, Daniel 8 doesn't even use the phrase abomination of desolation or really anything close. But that's what it's describing is, uh, is this, this commandeering of the temple for pagan purposes. And then in the book of Daniel, we see, we see this phrase abomination of desolation, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12, 11. It is used in those places in reference to something that defiles the holy place. And uh, this is, uh, is J.A. Alexander's comment on it. He was commenting on the words of Jesus. Jesus uses this phrase, abomination of desolation, in Mark 13, Matthew 24. And J.A. Alexander put it this way. He says, the first noun in Hebrew denotes originally anything disgusting or revolting, but is specially applied to the usage, uh, especially applied in usage to objects of religious abhorrence, and especially to everything connected with idolatry and heathenism. The epithet attached to it means wasting, desolating, and is particularly used to denote devastations incident to war. The combination of the two suggests the complex idea of a heathen conquest. And so, uh, so you have this, this phrase, abomination of desolation, and he says that, that ultimately kind of what this is getting at is a, a heathen conquest. And, uh, and I, I think that Daniel uses it definitely in regard to two, and I think three different events, actually. And so his usage in Daniel 11.31 points, as we've seen, to this, this desecration of the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes, in 167, and then in Daniel 9.27, and different, uh, different believers will go different ways on this, but I, I would see Daniel 9.27 as actually a prophecy of the events of 70 AD, when, uh, when the, uh, the Gentiles surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so, just to, just to jump back to, uh, to J.A. Alexander and his comments on, on Mark, he says that, you know, that these, these two words, this idea of abomination of desolation, suggests the idea of a heathen conquest. And commenting specifically on Jesus' words, as Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation, Mark 13, he says, which to the vast majority of readers in all ages has appeared peculiarly expressive of the Roman triumph over Israel and the destruction of the holy city under Titus. And so this is 70, 70 A.D. He thinks, and I, I would tend to agree, that, uh, that in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation and the need to get out of Jerusalem, when you see that, is, is talking about the, uh, the, the, Greek, or, excuse me, the Romans uh, surrounding the city. And so we've got Daniel 11.31, talking about the Maccabees. We've got Daniel 9.27, and again, different believers will go different ways, but I think, I think Daniel 9.27 is talking about the events of A.D. 70. And then we also have Daniel 12.11. 
a reference to the abomination of desolation. And I think that this points ahead to the final abomination of desolation just prior to Christ's return and abomination of desolation in which the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, is the chief actor. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that in biblical prophecy, especially, especially in regard to this, there seems to be this, this typology that is almost cyclical in terms of its nature and the events that happen. So we have this abomination of desolation happening under Antiochus Epiphanes, and it seems that, that Jesus refers to it in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans, and it seems also Daniel 12:11, and I think harmonizing that with 2 Thessalonians 2, pointing ahead to the last rebellion staged by the man of lawlessness. And so just to, just to comment on... Uh, to comment a little bit about Jesus' usage of the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14, those parallel passages uh, called the Olivet Discourse. And um, I think that what Jesus is saying there is that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by the Romans, they better get out of there and don't turn around to get anything because the Romans are coming and they're going to wreak havoc on everything in Jerusalem and they would defile the holy place. Uh, the early church historian Eusebius and uh, the ancient preacher and bishop John Chrysostom thought the Roman conquest of Jerusalem was the abomination of desolation. And I think that if you compare Matthew 24, Mark 13 with the parallel passage in Luke 21, that it, this seems to be borne out. And so let's, let's flip real quick to Luke 21, uh, Luke 21, 20. And so in, uh, in Luke 21, 20... He says, uh, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that her desolation is near. And then if you, if you look down to the next few statements uh, in, uh, in Luke 21, you'll see that there are uh, some parallel elements to, uh, to the, the rest of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. There's the fleeing to the mountain, the woe to the pregnant women, uh, the great distress upon the land, the wrath to the people. And then comes Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be held captive into all nations, excuse me, led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and so this this seems to to point to the uh, the I, I think I think the the Luke twenty one passage is is especially clear. This is talking about A.D. seventy when Jerusalem is is conquered by by the Romans and uh, and trampled on by the Gentiles. Then until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and indeed. Uh, we maybe don't think much about the events of A.D. 70, but those days were days of great tribulation. Um, Josephus, who was an eyewitness of the siege of Jerusalem, said, Never did any city suffer such things, nor was there ever any generation that more abounded in malice and wickedness. And Josephus estimated that in all, 1.1 million Jews were killed, 97,000 were taken prisoner, and then either put to death, sold into slavery, or put to death in the arenas. And during the siege, the Romans crucified Jewish prisoners, perhaps as many as 500 a day. And, uh, and so we need, to, we need to understand the events of AD 70 were, were really big and were really cataclysmic. And I think, um, I think uh, it can truly be said that there was an abomination of desolation that occurred there. And so we... We see this, and then also Daniel, Daniel 12, 11 seems to point ahead to, uh, to the final abomination. So if you flip over to 2 Thessalonians 2, we see the, uh, the man of lawlessness uh, prophesied there. And um, we're, we're told there in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, that he opposes and exalts himself above every god or so-called object of worship, and that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so, and so I think that, that this also can be described as an abomination of desolation, where you have, where you have this, this man, a, a heathen conquest, as it were. This man shows up and in some sense uh, presents himself as God and takes his seat in the temple of God. 
And, um, and, so, and so, again, we have this, this cyclical nature of things. These things have popped up in the past, and it's coming in the future. We don't know exactly when, and many details are not known to us, but it is, uh, it is coming again. So any, any questions on, on that, the kind of the, the cyclical nature of the, of the abomination of desolation? Jamie? Yeah. Yeah, the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of uh, of the temple, those the that whole complex of events there. Hmm. Yeah, I I think it's a good it's a good question. I'm not sure I've got got a great answer other than that. Um, other than that, Jerusalem was a was was a holy city, and that the temple was to be the place where where the true worship of God took place. And obviously, the the Jewish nation as a whole did not recognize and receive Christ. And, and Jesus said that that this is this is why this destruction is come up, is going to come upon you because you didn't recognize the the hour of your visitation. And um, and so and so I think the I think what I would lean towards saying is is that it's it's not that the the good and wholesome worship in the temple was was uh that the temple was like rededicated to to zeus or to to some idol so much as that um that jerusalem and the temple were supposed to be dedicated to, to god and godly purposes and because they failed to to recognize their uh their time of visitation, and as, as Jesus said in the, uh, in the parable of the vineyard, the, the kingdom of God is, is taken away from you and, and, is, and is, given to, is given to the Gentiles. And so um, I think that's, that's kind of where, where I would say it is that it's a, it's a little, more, little more vague and a little more general as opposed to kind of these, these concrete, specific things with, with the pig on the altar in 167 B.C. and with the, the man of lawlessness in, in some way declaring himself to be God and setting himself up in the temple of God, um, but uh, but but nevertheless, I think that's that's kind of how I would tend to answer that. Does that does that help, Mark? Like a, in it being kind of a kind of a heathen a heathen conquest. I, that's I think that would that would be kind of where I would where I would fit it. I realize that that might not satisfy that might not satisfy everybody, but that's that's kind of how I would. Um, how I would tend to tend to take it, and then um, the second thing then is uh, is kind of a little bit more specific to uh, to Antiochus, and uh, Antiochus is in a in a way, and I think a significant way, a type of of Antichrist, and um, so Cyprian of Carthage in the in the early Centuries was was uh, writing a, a letter to, to Christians, exhorting them to to martyrdom and to, to being willing to, to suffer and so on. And he was he was looking back to the the Maccabean martyrs, and uh, th- he said this. He said, "The king Antiochus, their enemy, yea, in Antiochus, Antichrist was set forth." And then he he goes on from there, but but he he says that uh, that in Antiochus you have Kind of a shadow or a type of the Antichrist who is to come, and I think that the the prophecy of Daniel eleven, uh, the way Daniel eleven and Daniel twelve go, I think that uh, that seems to seems to bear that out because if you flip back to, to Daniel eleven and then look ahead to Daniel chapter twelve, it seems that you have a a bleeding, as it were, of Antiochus Epiphanes. In Daniel 11, uh, up through up through verse 35, or especially uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes, I guess it it uh, really 
the crux comes in 29 through 35. But then in verse 36, from verse 36 to the end of the chapter, a large swath of commentators, and I, I think I would tend to agree, starting in verse 36, I think that from verse 36 on, this is a prophecy not of, not of Antiochus Epiphanes, but ultimately of, uh, of the Antichrist who was to come. And, um, and so, and especially as you get on into, into Daniel 12, it, be, it becomes clear that this is, this is the end times that we're talking about. Because Daniel, Daniel 12, 2, of course, is the, uh, the prophecy of, of the resurrection, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who... Have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so, uh, so the the point is is that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of folks tend to be unable to see really historically how Daniel eleven thirty six and following actually fits and uh, and meshes with. Um, with the, the later career of, of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so um, Calvin, uh, Calvin commented on Daniel 11.36 uh, by saying, This passage is very obscure and has consequently been explained in very opposite ways by interpreters. And whatever is obscure is usually doubtful. And there would be little utility and no termination if I were to narrate the opinions of them all. I shall therefore follow another method. And omitting all superfluous labor, I shall simply inquire the angel's meaning. I must, however, refer briefly to opinions received by the consent of the majority, because they occupy the minds of many and thus close the door to the correct interpretation. Christian expositors present much variety, but the greater number incline towards Antichrist as fulfilling the prophecy. And um, and so and so I think I think he's right there that the the greater uh, the greater number refer it to refer it to the Antichrist, and I would I would tend to uh, I would tend to do so as well. And so the uh, the point is is that is that there's a a kind of a, a repeating cyclical nature. Again, history doesn't absolutely repeat itself, but it but it does rhyme, and therefore we as believers uh, should be ready for something along these lines to occur again. And I know that uh, I know that when Jamie was was preaching Second Thessalonians, that that he looked back to to the Maccabean period and saw and saw some of this some of this stuff repeating itself in in the prophecies that uh, that were to come uh, in regard uh, to. To the Antichrist, and so uh, when we see uh, great wickedness abound, and when we uh, when we you know should we ever happen to see the man of lawlessness arise, if we're living in those times, we need to we need to be ready. We need to understand that that there's great persecution that can come upon the people of God. But as with the prophecy of the twenty three hundred morning and evenings, the the intensity of the time is is limited. Right, Jesus says. That uh, uh, that the days will be shortened for for the sake of the elect, right? In uh, in the Olivet discourse, I, I think I might be might be butchering the quote there, but uh, but the point is is that by the grace of God, trusting in the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and sustain us, we can uh, we can endure uh, to the end, and uh, we need not be surprised, and we can trust that God will ultimately. Uh, preserve his people, preserve his church, that as hard as the times might be, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's people. So, uh, so I realize that's, that might be a lot, um, might be a little depending on your perspective, but any, any comments or questions as we kind of move to, move to closure here? Just uh, just one one more comment on the on the issue of, of perseverance, and so if you uh, if you look at the look at the end of Daniel twelve, um, Daniel twelve, uh, starting in verse ten and then down down to the end of the chapter, he says many will be purged, purified and refined, 
But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. And so I wanted to, uh, to just offer, uh, just offer a, a comment in regard to the, uh, the, the 1290 and the 1335 in regard to, to the issue of perseverance. Let me, let me just read real quick from Calvin and then from Dale Ralph Davis. Calvin said in regard to verse 12, he said, In numerical calculations, I am no conjurer. And those who expound this passage with too great subtlety only trifle in their own speculations and detract from the authority of the prophecy. And Dale Ralph Davis, I think, is, is, is pretty helpful. He says, The most notable characteristic of the numeral 1335 is that it is larger than 1290. Beckett, does that sound right? 1,335 is larger than 1,290. <laughs> and so he says, If one then makes it to the 1,335 days, he or she has outlasted the 1,290. Such persons have endured. They outlast the pressure, the persecution, the pain they have gone through and beyond the trouble. The, num- the numerals may baffle us, but the way they are used here simply implies... Yahweh has a people who will make it in spite of everything thrown at them. And I think, I think, that's, I think that's, that's a helpful note to end on, that the Lord has a people who will persevere. And so may God give us grace to be among that number. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered the, the suffering, and the persecution of your people. We've considered the way in which you raised up some to, to re-cleanse the, the temple and to rededicate it to you. And Lord, we've seen how these events seem to, to function as, as types of, of events that are still yet to come. And Lord, we pray that whatever we may face, Lord, we ask that you give us grace, that you strengthen us by your Spirit, that we uh, would endure in faith, in patience, in humility, whatever you may send upon us. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would help us and bless us as we do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.